Welcome to Tech Talks, the technology podcast with David Savage and Jack Pierce, publishing on Mondays and Thursdays. This is the show packed full of interviews and debate with technology leaders for the love of tech. On today's podcast, we have Richard Murray. He's the co-founder of Food Chain. But before that, it's not Hello Jack. It's Hello Josie. I know. Or Joe Rowe, as he called you the other day. Joe Rowe? Yeah. You weren't Peavy. Joe Rowe when you were last on the show. J JP? JP? That no, he, called, he called you Joe Rowe yeah, during the podcast. Well, no one would know what he's talking about. Sounds more ghetto. <laughs> Sounds more ghetto than I think you warrant. Joe Rowe. He does call me Joe Rowe to my face, to be fair. Just not on the podcast. Do you feel that you're cool enough to be Joe Rowe? I feel like him saying it makes it uncool, but if anyone else said it, then it might possibly be cool. To be fair, Jack saying saying something, yeah, probably would have that effect, right? <laughs> How you been? It's been what? It's been several months since you've been talking to our listeners. Yeah, several months. Yeah, I'm all good. Um, happy to be back. Standing in for Jack whilst he's in Texas. Yeah, but it's always while Jack's doing something exciting that I get to come on the show, and then I'm a little bit jealous every time, but I'm happy to be back. So you're saying that you would want to be on the show when he's miserable? Yes. I don't know how we can arrange that. <laughs> Maybe get you on the show and Jack here and in the background have Arsenal playing football because he'll probably be miserable yeah, if recent events or anything to go by. Yeah, exactly. There we go. So, um, yeah, we're recording whilst I'm eating lunch, uh, which feels appropriate given that today's podcast <laughs> is with the co-founder of a, of a tech, tech food platform. Except for the fact that he's talking about sustainable food and I'm eating really cheap fish finger sandwich in a pub. Yeah, six pounds from a pub. I can't see that being sustainably sourced fish. No. Well, maybe it is. Maybe it's just... It's not going to be, is it? No, not at all. Never mind. Stop trying to kid yourself, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) The potatoes for the chips might be. Maybe. I doubt it. Okay. Um, Yeah, so we've got Richard on the show. Stay tuned though, afterwards myself and Josie will have a chat about it uh, and then we will have some tech news. So today we're chatting to Richard. You're the founder of Food Chain. Co-founder. Co-founder, apologies, <laughs> co-founder. I, someone will be very angry if they're listening to this already. Two, two seconds in, that's good, good start. But it was quite a long journey to get to this point because you had, a, I want to say a fisheries business before. I don't know whether that's necessarily exactly the right term because maybe that kind of, Makes it seem like you were going out to sea necessarily. I don't, I don't know. I grew up on a farm, so the food connection was there. Set up a fish stall in Battersea, and that stall was a bit of a disaster. It was great for the customers, but I never made any money. Right. I sold everything too cheap. Um, when you're selling face to face to someone, it's quite funny. I think I was just, was just too generous, but it worked really well in terms of just creating a base for me to start supplying and seeing the interest in, um, in, the, in the product and this idea that you know it's coming direct from the island like no one was really doing that everyone was just going down to Billingsgate or buying from Rolls um, and there was this kind of crazy guy I had quite a lot of hair in those days and these yellow wellies just on he literally set up a stall in Battersea and they're like where the hell have you come from um, <laughs> people used to just pass me on the way to work and go I'll come back later on my way back and they kind of wait all day for then people to come back on their way back from work did they? They did, yeah, they did. Oh, that's it was hard, really that's good. hard no, it was good. Yeah, it was a really good experience. Um, but uh, fortunately, I was, it was next to a pub called the Duke of Cambridge. Fortunately, the chef came out and kind of took a bit of interest. Uh, he was part of a, a big chain. Um, but he 
kind of broke the rules, I suppose, and, and just started buying from me because the fish was so good. Um, and they then they were paying me cash each week, which and then he started to spread me around about eight other pubs in the in the group in the area, and that then that cash flow enabled me to then start selling into restaurants. And the business grew and was bought, yeah. and you ended up feeling that it wasn't. In the end, quite the business that, whilst it was a great business, it wasn't the business that you wanted to necessarily be in longer term. Yeah. So what what was the evolution to the idea that Food Chain now is? I was just setting up this text message in 2007, 2008. So there was, there was no, everyone was still faxing their prices to chefs. It was still old school. Um, and there was this guy who was just like, hey, I'll text you in the afternoon what I've bought up. And it, it, you know, suddenly you had kind of 300 chefs wanting to, to see uh, this text message and they'd order with you directly and then just deliver it to them the next day and I think that was a real kind of turning point in terms of what I wanted to, you know I was all around just creating this kind of transparency I just it was obvious to me that you just told them where it was coming from but it turned out the industry wasn't really doing that um, and so the real kind of learning from that was this idea of obviously giving a really clear message to people telling people where it's coming from in a really nice and clean way like you know, just this one message popping into your phone once a day the problem with that company was it was still a physical Britain water wholesale company so as it grew you know you're suddenly spying 300 restaurants you've got you know six fans you've got a team of 25 and you're working all day all night and you, suddenly you, you stop being able to innovate so that initial innovation of just cutting through the industry and like getting straight into the chef's phone there and then giving you the order directly that was the innovation but ultimately i wasn't able to kind of build on that because the business was so hard to run mm. and to employ um so then when somebody came off the client i was like yes you can have it um and i then went and worked for them for a couple of years ran their business kind of under contract but it was another it was a great um kind of evolution again because i saw the bigger version of what my company was over 100, 100 staff, 40 vans, you know, 1,000 customers. And it was just, it was this big beast that I could, you know, to me then it suddenly really started to become clear that we needed a different model. You know, we, we still need wholesale companies because they do serve a purpose, but we needed to go back to those basics of what I was doing at the beginning, which is then this really clear messaging, uh, transparency around where the product is coming from, and really easy ordering process. Um, and that's kind of like where food, the idea of food chain started. And, and to your point, before before we started recording, you sent across some pointers, some, some emails, and, and you said there that it'd be good to talk about the impact of industrialised food systems to date and how a decentralised system can solve those problems. And I guess the business that you founded and had been bought was beginning to become quite centralised. Yes. I think when you're running a business like that and you've got... You know, so many different departments to run, transport, you know, production, processing, buying, selling. You know, they're, they're, those companies are they're very broad in, in terms of what they do. And and so clearly, you you stop, and partly because of your customers' demands too, you stop focusing on the quality of the produce and the provenance, and you start focusing on how on things like distribution, price. And how you can, yeah, narrow your supply chain. You, you want fewer suppliers because it's, it's costly to have lots of suppliers. Yeah. And that's exactly what the industrialized food system is. It's just clearly around 
getting people to grow vertically. So if, if a company comes along that um, rears chickens, you know, and they're free-range chickens and they sell to their local pubs and uh, markets and they're doing a great job and then suddenly they start to grow and eventually the industrialised food system will be saying to them, their incentive is get bigger, We'll, we'll, we'll engage you, we'll engage in commercial contracts, we'll pay you less over time, but it will get you more volume. And that's what's happened over time in most of the industrialized food systems, where it's like, they just want, all the big players want fewer and fewer supplies. So they say to that company, to keep growing, get more factories, um, bigger processes, or get a bigger factory, we'll give you a bigger order next year. Um, and then maybe even like, do more. You know, you're doing chickens now, why don't you do our pork? Why don't you do you know, our, our eggs as well? And in a decentralized system, you've got the opposite, where you're actually telling people, no, stay at what you're good at doing. Stay as a free-range, small chicken producer. We will get you connections directly with where your food, your food ends up. So you have control over the price. So over time, you can increase your margin if that's what the market's willing to pay. So just to jump in, yeah. is it, is it a, a kind of an online marketplace then? What, what are the actual mechanisms? How does it work to allow farmers to to do that in reality. So, so the whole point of a market network is that you are enabling suppliers and, and chefs to, to build relationships. So you, you're connecting them. Mm. So it's transparent. So yeah, you've got an app or a desktop you know, a website where people can list their products, people can connect with suppliers so they can, they can find out about them, they connect with them, they, you know, we've got a chat function, you've got all the information there around the supplier, you can call them through the app. Have you been able to look at any kind of European countries or, or maybe beyond Europe and kind of have a look at how, how it works there to take ideas? Because the one thing that this does remind me of, when I was growing up, we used to holiday a lot in France and the local supermarkets sourced all of their meat from the local area, which was always quite different to what I'd experienced in the mid to late 90s, early noughties in the UK. Um, so, so can I answer that question in terms of Europe? Yes, you still have the big retail players there. There are will be more examples of some good local markets. But I think what Food Chain is saying is like, we're not just a marketplace, we're a market network, which is this idea that by being a network, you are allowing people to bring their relationships into the marketplace. So you're not just purely transactional. A marketplace is just purely transactional. They just want to have as many transactions as possible. Um, and that, I think, often leads to a downward pressure on price and then quality. Whereas with a market network, effectively your business, your platform, is building tools to enable people to, for their relationships to flourish and over time. You're talking about relationships there, and you're kind of saying, you know, it's a partner network, we want to build yeah. um, something that will mean a more open, transparent market that has a positive impact at scale. Forgive the, the stupid question, but is that that hunkering down on something that you're really strong at and making it more profitable in some way. I mean, how, how does that actually it's, work, it's that, that scale piece? It's, it's, it's that, um, that's the initial part of just saying, rather than expand your, your product range, focus on what you're really good at and access a wider market yep. through a market network. Um, so, you know, as you said, sometimes just selling locally isn't the best thing because you know, there's only so many local customers there, whereas that's through a market network, you could potentially just stick to your amazing duck or amazing you know, brie and sell it through a market network more nationally. Um, and then the, the, the idea that the, the, the network is kind of greater than the sum of its parts is the fact that then all of those growers start to kind of work together. Just from a, an insight point of view as a founder, you've obviously founded a couple of businesses. You describe yourself as reasonably task orientated. And you also said that once your business was bought, um, you worked as a manager for them. Yes. What learning have you taken from those, from this experience, from that experience, 
from being the crazy guy in yellow wellies going around the country that kind of goes, you know what, if you're going to found a business, this is the one or two things that I would think about. I think I would def- my advice would be to get into an area where you can hire really great people. Right. Because that was like, that wholesale company, it's just so hard to hire people. And then even then, it's hard to hire good people, actually, um, who could then enable you to, you know, look wider and further and have a bigger vision and focus on where you can really innovate longer term. Because ultimately, that's got to be the, the goal for the business is to keep innovating. Um, keep driving value to the, to the customers, um, and so the big the big thing for me with food chain is the fact that by moving from a food business into a food technology business, the team that you're able to attract is just completely different. so much better. And so I am already you know into two even after one and a half years. Well, I had you know I, you know we we bootstrapped out the company, so the first year. Me and my co-founders worked you know, solidly and hard, which I think is still something that we need to solve. I don't think that it practically broke me, and I'm you know really forty. I've got two children, so it was hard this time around. It was the first time around, I was twenty-six, and I didn't have you know, any responsibilities. Um, you know, so maybe maybe funding is the is one um, solution to that. But I don't I, I don't agree with. I still think the best thing is for a business to to learn in its first year, yeah. not have too much external pressure. I think the bootstrapping exercise is really important from a from a from a product point of view. You know, from really especially from a technology point of view, really understanding your users, understanding what works, and be able to think think longer term. Because if you get into bed too early with investors, I think you're you're handicapped from kind of um, thinking longer term. Um, but then after a year and a half, I was able to, you know, we had a team in place, we've grown the business well. So we've even got, you know, up to a team of over 10 people still being bootstrapped. And um, that enabled me then to really start to look at how do we build this network? How do we get partners in? We, we have Food Chain's market network, the, the customer, we have, you know, set eight, nearly 80 suppliers. Some of them are doing as much as £70,000 a month of sales through Food Chain. So we've built up a lot of trust in our suppliers. We have over 400 restaurants in there, so we've built up a lot of trust there and a lot of um, goodwill. Um, but we don't want to just then keep growing that marketplace. We know that what we need to do is then get people to look at Food Chain as, as an ecosystem in itself, uh, a network that they can use and be a part of. Being able to hire really well and have good people has enabled me to do that. Now, as if all of this wasn't enough, yeah. and you said then it's been pretty hard, nearly 40 years old with two kids, so you're yeah. a bit of a sucker for punishment here, but you <laughs> decided to set up a charity called Feast Fairly. So, um, what is it and why, very quickly? Feast Fairly is a campaign to try and drive structural change in the menus of restaurants using surplus produce that is being thrown away in supply chain. Um, at the same time, trying to re-engage restaurants with their communi- local communities and the final piece is really then as we create more value in, in that surplus produce is deemed of no value to the market when we by by getting restaurants to change their menu and put it on the menu we create value in that product and we then want to take a piece of that value and give it to people or organizations that are working in the food hunger food poverty space so i was, it was last summer i was kind of talking to Chantel Nicholson, Doug McMaster at Silo, around what the future of restaurants is, what's the future of eating out, hospitality, where's it all going? It's clearly in massive flux with the 
kind of movement from, of convenience off the high street into online. Um, so what are these restaurants going to do? They have to become more experiential, they have to engage their customers more. So that means, and some of that is menu redesign. And also we've got a lot of problem with waste in the supply chain, again, due to the menu design. So to try and solve that through you know, using food chains collaborative systems. But then I was also volunteering at the Refectory of Felix when I was core. And it's, you know, it's an amazing, amazing organisation. This really you know, amazing idea of, kind of trying to be more cohesive and give these people who are more vulnerable than us, don't have access, a really respectful experience of a meal. So we go in there, we serve them a three-course meal, we set the, the tables well for them. It's a nice environment, it's a safe environment. They also try and help them train to get out of that um, you know, problems that they're in. And it just seems really apparent to me that there was you know, a link here that wasn't being made. Um, that a lot of the waste that was going into these homeless kitchens is actually from supermarkets, which you know is not a bad thing. But I think there's an opportunity to actually connect them with real surplus that farmers actually can get value from. The, the problem with the term waste, I don't really use the word term waste too much because it just denotes no value. What I'm trying to say is, is that you know, we find surplus, we just find food that the market is saying it's not valuable. And we use chefs who are, you know, the creativity and the drive in, in food, really, for me, uh, to then create new dishes, create value, and then we share that with people who don't have the same access to that as us. So are you, are you looking for restaurants to find out about, about the charity? Restaurants for sure. Like so, we've started a campaign. Our first campaign is in May. We've got 50 restaurants, so we just promoted it through the food chain network to begin with. Right. And we quickly set ourselves targets: 50 restaurants. We've got that, and they are all going to have a dish on their menu with feast fare, and one pound from each dish sold will be donated to the restaurant. Yeah, that's right. Um, and then we want to really then start to. You know, we, I don't want to stop there. You know, I want. I, ideally, I want us all to walk into a restaurant next year and say, "What's your feast fare dish?" And where's it going? You know, which homeless kitchen, which organisation to my local area is it? Because I didn't know, I don't live that far from Melbourne. I didn't know about Refitory for There's so many, so many good things that come, I think, from these campaigns. Connecting with farmers, giving them, farmers have been disconnected by the industrial food system. They don't know where their food ends up. Often, there's this view that if you go to a farmer and ask them to donate something or a better price, they, you know, they don't want to because they're, they're, they're up against it already. The farmers that we've engaged are food throwing produce at, at, at the campaign. So you know, there's a cattle bean egg farm in Oxfordshire, one of the best, you know, real premium brand of egg, um, egg farmers. And, but he gets these pullet eggs, which are small eggs. So when the, the hens first start to lay, they're young, they, they, they bring these, uh, they you know, produce small eggs. And the, the industrial system, and even the restaurants and the chefs have been guilty of just saying, no, we all want large, we want large. So they can't sell these eggs, he just throws them away. And he's now delivering twice a week to the restaurant for free. There you go. And, 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 and he, you know, just amazing like the different conversation that I had with him than I would probably as a, as a chef or on the supply side, where it's more commercial um, environments. He, you know, I, I'm not going to give them to you. you know, you've got to pay for them, which is fair enough. But with this, he's like, no, I connect because he can see where it's going. And I think that's along this campaign, I'm hoping that just the connections between farmers and chefs, chefs and their local and their customers and then their chefs and the customers and the local organisations helping with food hunger it just creates a, just a really nice atmosphere which often you know any chef or supplier will tell you that the hospitality and the supply industry is guilty of often being quite you know um, uh, quite abrasive you know it's quite you know, shouted at each other quite a lot and a lot of complaining and you know, it's not always 
smooth, which you know, is the nature of the, of the logistics. As I said, the key, the key to it is not looking at this food as waste, because then you're basically saying it's of no value and people shouldn't have to pay for it. Yeah. And what we're doing with this campaign, which is different to I think all other food waste campaigns, is saying no, we actually want to create value. So I've got these small potatoes from this farm in Devon coming up for a dinner that we're doing to kick off the campaign on Monday. Um, and they've given them to us for free. And he's, you know, the farmer, I think, grumpily, he's kind of like, well, how many times are you going to be asking for this then? And I said, well, what's, what's the price? And he's like, oh, I just thought you wanted them for nothing. I was like, no, I want to, if this chef, Doug McMaster at Silo, is doing the dish, he creates a great dish, and all those, customers, those 60 people who are coming to the dinner say it's delicious, well, that's obviously valuable. It has a value. So we should then be engaging other chefs in the country and worldwide to say these potatoes are usable, there is a value, and we can and customers are willing to pay X, and I believe then X percent of that should go to people that don't have that same access that we do. Um, so I think that that's really the kind of hypothesis around it. It's, just, it's, it's, it's kind it's of like, it's like the anti-waste campaign in a way. Like, yeah, yeah. I think everyone is a bit like that. It's really kind of this idea of creating value. Yeah. And then that actually, you know, lastly, that is a more sustainable food system. Rather than always trying to find new things. You know, and you look at the food system, it's always about something new, isn't it? New fats, new products, veg burgers, all these things. It's not necessarily a bad thing. But what we're doing here is actually taking something that's already in the system that's not, yeah, yeah. that's deemed of, of no value. And it is value. Well, look, I feel it was entirely appropriate to have shared a scone whilst talking about food. <laughs> so thank you for that. But have a lovely day and thanks for coming and, and talking to us. Thank you very much. I quite like the idea that he started this business as kind of this wild haired, guy in wellies effectively like maybe 10 years 14 years before it actually existed as a business because it's quite an organic thing or although food chain didn't exist when he was going on his tour around the uk and starting a a kind of a fishmonger fish supply business in billingsgate market kind of the seeds of what it became all started there. It feels like quite a, it feels like a journey in a way that maybe sometimes some of these interviews don't. Yeah, it definitely feels like a journey. I think for me, it kind of just reflected like the market like yes. really well. Because like, if, you know, standing in a market selling fish and, and doing that kind of direct sales stuff, you know, that's not necessarily where I'd see money now. But yeah. maybe if you think about 20 years ago, that maybe that was the best way to make money from that. Whereas it's really diversified as kind of the market has changed. Yeah. And now it's gone to that kind of app technology platform kind of space, which is so popular now. So I feel like for me, it was that kind of journey just mimicked the market. And if you think back to the way that he talks about that business, it was a bricks and mortar business. And obviously, well, I suppose 15 years ago, a tech platform, app-based business wasn't possible. So you only had the option of growing a business in one way. And as he rightly points out, actually you stop being able to innovate when you're just building something that's bigger and bigger and bigger within one particular vertical. Whereas now he's got this flexible solution that allows for a lot more nuanced ideas. Yeah, definitely. And I think you definitely get to a point with that kind of basic level of business where you just stop being able to innovate, you stop being able to change. You know, he was saying that he had, you know, too many employees and, and sort of too many sort of different ways to deliver and you're working 24-7. you couldn't hire the right employees. Exactly. And I really thought that was actually one of my most interesting points of the whole interview was him saying around it's really who you hire and getting the right people on board that created his business 
because I feel like every single interview that I come on here and, and you know that we all listen to it links back to that kind of culture and people and you know having the right people on board yeah I did find that really interesting because we often talk about how important is the sector that you work in is it important that someone coming into a startup understands that particular sector and he was saying it's almost liberating by the sounds of it to go from a food business to a food tech business in terms of who he's able to attract the type of profile the type of person he's able to hire now is wildly different from the one he was able to hire 10 years ago yeah i mean i can't see him hiring developers and, and sort of tech people in wellies that know a lot about you know the actual business they're working in but in a way that probably brings like a totally different angle and like a totally different sort of set of ideas and kind of innovation to that business that he probably didn't even have access to before he came up with sort of the new idea and sort of a new platform and, and where to kind of take the business. Yeah. Um, so I think he must have such a diverse kind of range of people working for him. But obviously that's only going to support, you know, the growth. But whilst he, whilst an app developer might not be particularly bothered about fish, they are bothered about where the fish comes from and how that fish is being caught now. Increasingly, we're seeing that in society, right? Yeah. I know that we're joking about the food that I'm eating right now. It's, it's a rare thing. I don't, I try to choose ethically sourced food, especially when it comes to fish, right? Yeah. And that, that does strike a chord with people. And I suppose that, that must be quite good fun to be able to talk to people and get them to buy into a mission in that sense. Yeah, I mean, we all joke about like, a vegan will always tell you they're a vegan, but like it's becoming so much more popular to like think about what you eat, where it comes from, what damage we're doing to the environment, whether it's sustainably sourced. You know, living in London, I feel like it's so difficult to get any food that actually comes from your local community. Um, but I do do my best, and I think someone trying to make me buy into that mission, it wouldn't take me long to get on board. Is it good to be a vegan though? Because he talks about fads, right? Yeah. And and. You know, sustainability is not about creating something new. Vegan is like, let's try and grow something new en masse, like yeah. a, a fake burger, a fake sausage, a fake whatever. Yeah. Like, sustainability doesn't mean you shouldn't eat meat. It just means don't eat shitloads of meat yeah. and don't eat meat from the other side of the planet. It yeah. means get to know Bill down the road who's got Daisy in a field, and unfortunately Daisy might become that steak, but that's not going to contribute to global, a global crisis around... I don't know, deforestation and climate change and whatever else. Yeah. No, so I had this situation before, which was absolutely hilarious. I was buying soya milk in the supermarket and this woman came up to me and told me and had a massive rant at me about how soya beans are destroying the planet <laughs> and me being a vegan, she assumed I was a vegan because I was buying soya milk was destroying the planet. And I just turned around to her and went, actually, love, I'm actually allergic to dairy so I'm not a vegan and you've just wasted five minutes of your time. But I just thought it was really interesting that someone went to that length to have a go at someone for being a vegan because she had your point of view. She was like, you're destroying the planet. We're not destroying the planet. I don't, I don't have the view that vegans are destroying the planet. What, what I do think though is there is this tendency to be like, this is the holy grail. It, I almost kind of think about it like evangelical Christian nutjobs in the States who are like, <laughs> you must have a view of the world that fits with my view of the world and if yeah. you don't you're going to hell yeah and it seems to be that basically people can be really militant on both sides when it comes to food and actually what Richard's saying here is it's not about creating something new it's about discovering the value that's already in the system so when he talks about um, feast fairly and he talks about eggs or potatoes that just don't quite meet the criteria of the big suppliers yeah. well why the hell are we wasting them no I think that honestly that idea is spot on 
Like you think about the amount of waste that supermarkets throw away, and he's just saying it's not waste. Like that is perfectly good food that people can eat. I mean, yesterday my sister's in um, Copenhagen at the moment, and she sent me a video of her in Waitrose. And in Waitrose in Copenhagen, they no longer use plastic, and they've changed all of their staff. That's so that happening they in actually, the UK. Yeah, they give away now like all the old sort of food that's not sort of waste but it's not quite fitting the criteria and they put it in boxes and you can walk around with a Tupperware and get like weird shaped eggs and like weird shaped fruit and stuff like that. I bet they overcharge you massively for it. Oh probably but (laughs) you know it's just it's the idea that like they're stopping to throw things away yeah I think they are doing it in the UK as well but I'd never seen it before and she sent me a video of it. Yeah yeah, I saw in the news this morning in the Guardian that they were of course uh, (laughs) they were trialing with like 10 stores packaging free stores in the UK or something along those lines yeah no that was exactly it but it was just weird that she was walking around with this little like I don't even know what it was like kind of sustainable container to put food in and then they always had this tray of like things that they were going to throw away that you could just take it's really weird but good we're going to end up with lots and lots of Tupperware yeah, that's what I thought was a bit ironic because they're getting away, with, they're getting rid of like plastic bags and we're replacing it with plastic containers. But there must have been some thought there that that's more sustainable. Combustible, I don't know. Uh, compostable rather, not combustible. That'd be combustible. Weird. <laughs> uh, kind of, yeah, cardboard food things. Yeah. Fine. Something like that. But isn't it something crazy like, I mean, this is a bit off topic, but only 15% of what goes in your recycling bin actually gets recycled unfortunately well something that I yeah on this topic which is slightly off topic but where I live they don't have compost all they have is recycling for plastic and black bin bag they don't collect compost which is crazy yeah I think it must be about like clean streets and things like that because it's a bit rubbish anyway but yeah they don't do compost which I think is mad cool Well, look, I think we'll go to our advert break, but stick with us because we'll have a couple of bits of tech news after that. Tech Talks are partnering with Alive and Kicking, a charity that set up businesses that manufacture beautiful sports balls across sub-Saharan Africa. Using profits from ball sales and additional fundraising from events like the Hackney Half Marathon, they're able to train sports coaches to deliver vital health education. We're about to hear from Naomi, a coach in Zambia, who's been trained to deliver mental health education to her community. Hello there, this is Coach Naomi from Zambia. I would love to say about Alive and Kicking training, which has helped me to teach my players about like mental health. It has really built my knowledge and they have passed through to my young players in, in the community. I also work with Special Olympics where we deal with children with disability, mentally and physically. I hope and trust that the Alive and Kicking will continue teaching coaches in various parts of the world, not just in Zambia. Thank you very much, Alive and Kicking. Did you see that yesterday Apple had a big tech launch? No. Does anyone really care? Do you remember when like Apple tech launches were like big news? And people like tuned in, live stream, like, what's the new phone going to look like? I remember that was the, I I think they did that with the iPhone 10. I think I saw the iPhone 10 one, but that's about it. So Apple had a big launch yesterday and I was a little bit quick to be like, yeah, whatever. No one cares anymore. 
you're just doing a whole load of stuff that isn't particularly interesting. And I feel a bit silly for being so dismissive because there was an absolute gem hidden away in this article, which I'm just quickly bringing up to read out the uh, particular section. Here we are. So Apple uh, yesterday, uh, they unveiled new iOS, an iPad iOS, oh, sorry, an iPad OS, Mac OS, and Mac Pro. The new Mac Pro, by the way, costs $6,000. What? It, I, mean, it, I have something so funny to say about the old one, though, which I've just got in my new job, right? They're yeah. giving me the new Mac, which has that bar on it, which oh, is yeah, like touch, touch bar, right? The most pointless thing I've ever seen. I looked at it and I was like, oh, this could be useful because every time you do it, it comes up with like suggested words that you could possibly type in and things like that. And I was like, oh, that's quite interesting. But essentially all it does is just replace the buttons that were there and then occasionally a word pops up that might be useful. But because I touch type, I never look down. So it's completely irrelevant. It's a gimmick. Yeah, and it probably costs them probably like another 500, 600 quid just to have a bar on there. So the Mac Pro, this is the first version of it since 2013, and it is for like the Uber Mac geek. Right. $6,000. 28 core Intel processors, 1.5 terabytes of RAM. Like, how fucking fast do you need a computer to be? Like, at a consumer level anyway. Surely that's only for enterprise market. Anyway, never mind. But the bit that I thought was interesting was they were talking about the watch. Health trend tracking now compares activity metrics such as steps, floors, and over the last 90 days with the rest of your year, giving you coaching when you're trending down. Apple have also added menstrual cycle tracking to both the Apple Watch and health app on the iPhone. For months, we've been banging on about this on the show about the fact that Fitbits and other health trackers don't take into account the obvious biological differences between men and women and that tech is not built for women it's purely built for men by men but I thought this was quite positive yeah I guess that is positive in, in the sense that that tracks that so that when you're a bit sluggish that's why or, or is that more just from a health perspective I don't well know. so the idea that if you're a girl like okay sorry probably shouldn't say girl if you're a woman and you go to the gym yeah. at a certain time of the month You're you can't go as hard as yeah. at other times okay and so it's not gonna sort of beast you for that like other apps might essentially yeah. it understands that there are there are points in the month where you're going to be a little bit underperformance by compared comparison to others and therefore if it's got inbuilt smart training it can push you at the right times as a consequence yeah that is quite clever which from an elite athlete point of view for women is so much more enlightened than just like a flat why aren't you doing 20% more than you were last time I guess yeah I mean it's a step and it's a step in the right direction definitely I think I'd be interested to see how effective it actually is if yeah. I'm honest yeah, yeah, yeah I think that's a very difficult thing to accurately track for a lot of people because yeah. it's never it's never exactly the same time it's never exactly the same you know it's never never exactly the same basically so yeah. I would be very interested how effective it is but but given the lack it's of femtech right on the direction. market, yeah, definitely. and given that big tech in, in particular tends to maybe sometimes overlook these things, yeah. I thought kudos to Apple for once, because no, of, of late I've just been a bit like, yeah, whatever, you're just iterating on existing shit. Well, it's actually something different, isn't it? I yeah. mean, I don't know if I'd pay probably the extra £300 to get one of those watches for that, only for that reason, 
but it's not just saying, here, look, here's a new product. We've made the screen slightly bigger and the phone slightly smaller. Now pay us another thousand pounds. Like there's actually something different there. Or we've stuck a pointless touch bar. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, one of the pieces that I thought I'd share with you and see what you thought about this, stem cell patches could help mend hearts after heart attacks. Right. So, human trials are beginning. Um, basically, scientists have developed heart patches that could benefit hundreds of thousands of people who've had a heart attack. British Heart Foundation said the patches, which are grown in a lab and help repair damaged hearts, could one day provide an off-the-shelf treatment. They've shown promise in animals and clinical trials in humans, which begin uh, in the next two years. The thumb-sized patches of heart tissue contain up to 50 million stem cells programmed to turn into working heart mu muscles. Muscle cells, rather. I thought that was fascinating because yeah, obviously when is. you have a heart attack, the heart muscle is... It dies, doesn't it? Yeah, it yeah. dies. It's irreparably damaged yeah. and therefore you're far more likely to die of heart failures. But that would actually replace the dead cells in your heart, essentially. The stem cells are programmed to grow and it's not like a transplant where it might be rejected. It's yeah. you growing the cells. So you could reverse the effects of a heart attack. See, this is kind of linked to what we were just talking about. So. You know, how are they going to get that so it's exactly right for every different person? Because in medical research, there's actually quite a lot of proof that they do it for a certain type. So, like, they might do all the research based on a man, right. and then it won't work for a woman. Or they'll do all the research based on a certain ethnicity, and then it won't work on other ethnicities. So there's, like, all these kind of little factors that have to be taken into account. I would assume that stem cells are kind of like... They're blank, aren't they? So they can be reprogrammed. I don't know. I don't know enough I'm about not, medical I'm science. I'm not a medical scientist. I'm just being devil's advocate. But, but I thought, maybe you know, I'm wrong. No, no. I, I just thought, given that Trump's in the UK, given that we're talking about climate change and climate crisis, talking, given that we're talking about mass extinctions, global warming, all of this shit, which is undoubtedly pertinent and bad, um, and that humans were generally fucking up nature, it was a good thing. It yeah, was a no, good it thing. Is. Human ingenuity it at its no, best. It Good news story, which we don't do enough of. I think medicine, you can always find something that is like going in the right direction that actually is probably not advertised enough. You know, I didn't see that article and I find that really interesting. So thank you for bringing it up, Dave. There we go. <laughs> Service to the community. Right. I think I'll, I'll stop bugging you, but thank you for coming and guesting on the show. That's all right. Are you going to come back more regularly? I will come back whenever you guys want to listen oh, to me. Oh, look at that. Right. Boot jack off. Cool. <laughs> Good idea. Have a good weekend.